Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Meeple Syrup Show. It's Sen here with Dylan Kirk, all the way from France, and Chris Rowland out in Seattle, correct, Chris? Yes, Seattle, Washington. Good. And Oren is over here. He is not a dinosaur. He's fixing his camera. And here we have the one and only Matt Tolman. And Matt um, is going to show us, because I can't actually unmute him. He has to unmute himself, but I don't know if you can do that right now. Uh, he's mute, but he's going to show us brass. So go ahead. Hey, you're, you're on mute, Matt. Give us a go. What's up? All right. Hey, guys. Am I unmuted? Yep, you're good. Okay. We're here at the Gathering of Friends. As you can see, well, let me get my microphone cord out from in front of the... We're just sitting down to a game of brass right now, actually, with uh, Daryl Andrews, Carla McGeehan, and Jeff from Fun Again Games. And, uh, yeah, we've just been demoing it here uh, every day. Carlin's been a great salesperson for us uh, at Rockley. And, uh, yeah, we've got a near-finished uh, prototype here. As you can see, it's almost all final art. Uh, you know, we're still got some UI stuff we're working out, but it's looking pretty good right now. And how's, how's the reception? Oh, it's good. I mean, we're intentionally going heavy with this one. It's it's This is, like... You know, brass for brass players, right? So we're basically just trying to appeal to that already core audience of brass. It's like, well, you played a lot of brass, then you'll like this. And if you haven't played a lot of brass, why not? Because right, it's the right. best game ever made. And what's the difference <laughs> between the two? So the big difference is, is in the industries. So in regular brass, you got shipyards and ports, and they're gone because Birmingham is inland. Yes. So now we've got breweries because big beer area, Birmingham. So that's these. And then you've got manufactured goods because that's also where, you know, modern manufacturing is kind of born in Birmingham. And then uh, pottery was also a big thing there. Um, the other big thing I would say is just the way the manufactured goods work. I don't know if you can see these incomes here, yep. but uh, they, they kind of go up and down. And thematically, we wanted it to be a less consistent industry because it's not a particular thing. It's not like all cotton. It's like this one could be like, who knows, you're manufacturing horseshoes. And then this one's like, you know, I'm you're making um, silverware or whatever. So it's kind of like a less consistent um industry in general okay and, and that develops some really interesting play that was born out of the fact that uh me and gavin were having a conversation about how the best parts of brass are the rough edges and we're not talking about the virtual link we're talking about um how how like the level two cotton se or level two coal seems amazing when you first sit down and you like always want to take your level one because it's so much worse but then you realize the level one's so much easier to flip and it's it's the uh, it's the inconsistency that is really fun to play around. I think so. We we wanted to design an industry from the ground up with that as its key focus. So how long has this been in development in total? Uh, we've been doing this for uh, really steady for a year. Most of our development's been on Tabletopia, and we've been playing with the uh, a lot of the top players from Order of the Hammer, which is the uh, brass uh, online place. That's great. And how involved are you guys with Martin? Uh, yeah, we update Martin like daily, and uh, 
uh, he, he's really happy with the way it's gone. Um, we, uh, we, we would like to play more with him, but he doesn't like playing online, so it's difficult. <laughs> well, I guess you'll just have to go to New Zealand then. Yeah, exactly. Right. I, I could think of a worse way to go play games. That's right. So place. cash in some of those poker chips. Maybe you can trade Alan for some poker chips. Alan really likes playing poker. And then, <laughs> and then you can you can get down to New Zealand. Um, so yeah, exactly. we're going to say goodbye to the gathering of friends and especially that Daryl Andrews guy. Who likes that guy? Daryl. What's he doing over say there? Say bye, Daryl. <laughs> All right, and we'll see you guys later, Matt. Thanks very much. Thanks, Carlin. It's yeah, great to see Brass. And yeah, for those of you, thanks for are, having me. Um, uh, Matt, quick before you go, when is that? When is that going live on Kickstarter? Monday. Monday, Monday, Monday. You heard that here, guys. You can yeah. uh, click to pledge for that game on Monday, uh, Easter Monday. There you go. All right, Matt. We'll see you guys later. Bye. All right. Bye. See you, Matt. Ciao. Ciao. Uh, Monday, Monday. So good to me. Let yeah. Me tell you. Oh, hey, look. We have Oren. Hey. I you the dinosaur. You misled me. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I, I'm sorry I've let you down. It's okay. I still yeah, love you. Oren, when did you get so much hair? I haven't seen you in a couple of years, apparently. Yeah, it's true. I've kind of been growing it out. I'm not really sure what to do with it. Sometimes I do the ponytail, sometimes braids. Um, yeah, I'm kind of experimenting. Braids I don't know, are Dylan, to go, I gotta say. Yeah, Dylan would recommend the braids, I think. The braids are totally on. You gotta get right. full Ragnar, man. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> I'm thinking <laughs> of doing the beards on. as well. Get your Ragnar, that's right. So, um, well, we're kind of like just going to be playing it by ear today because we're going to have Paul on as well. But we wanted to start off by kind of talking to Matt a little bit about, you know, what your uh, what Roxy's doing with with brass, but it's nice Oren to have you here so that we can kind of get uh, a perspective on how Roxley works. We're going to kind of talk a little bit about more of the machinery than necessarily the development, but we'll, we'll maybe get some specific questions about what you're uh, what you're working on. Definitely. Um, later. Glad to talk to you guys. It's nice to see you. Awesome. Yeah, well, see why, you. why don't we get get uh, Chris uh, Chris introduced here Sin? Yeah, for sure. So um, we're here with Chris and Oren. Chris is a guy, a dude, a person, a great guy <laughs> from out west in Seattle, and he is behind. Uh, this is this is yours, right, Chris? Was it mine? I'm sorry, I missed yeah. that first part. This. Oh yes, that's me. Yeah, that's it's you. One thousand right XP, there. yeah. And so Chris is behind that brand. Um, recently had a successful Kickstarter. Um, and can you tell us about your process and that a little bit? And I have a couple questions. I do have questions about it. So go ahead, tell us about what you just sure. finished. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so we actually just wrapped up uh, a Kickstarter for The Last Garden, which is a game that was co-designed by uh, me and the 1000XP co-founder, Matt Christensen. And it's a game about uh, the post-apocalypse where players are actually controlling robotanists that are robots that have been discovered and reprogrammed by the last person on Earth to help her build a beautiful garden in the post-apocalypse. Nice. Uh, so... Um, Basically, players will control groups of robotanists trying to compete to be the queen's favorite. 
and they're going to be placing down workers to uh, gain points. So it's kind of like a, a worker placement game, but it has some direct interaction as well, which is something that we really like, uh, inspired by games like um, Roulette, Craps, Camel Up, those types of things. So the robots you place are actually little bets on the board. You're trying to score points with them. Cool. That is super cool. It's cool. Very so cool. What, did you, what did you wrap up? And sorry, my, my connection my connection's lagging a bit. Uh, yeah, that's okay. When did you wrap up? <laughs> oh, so uh, the our Kickstarter wrapped up about two weeks ago, which we actually just got our our money put into uh, the account today, actually. Uh, so we're currently sending the files over to the manufacturer, getting everything proofed, uh, and we're hoping to deliver in November, which is what we sort of slated. Uh, so that game has been in development for a long time. So, you know, as you guys can imagine, it, it was um, sort of a nice to be able to put a bow on it and get everything moving. Excellent. So why don't why don't we just actually because we're we're we have a Kickstarter just ending we've got a Kickstarter that's about that's about to start but Oren in your uh, job with Roxley obviously Roxley's been kind of slowly expanding requiring more hands on deck can you tell us how that machine has started uh, absorbing the people around it to to do work <laughs> and what you're doing. Well, I mean, one of the advantages that we have is, um, like, the, the group of people in Calgary, as you know, like, we've all been kind of working together, uh, playtesting, developing stuff for, for years and years. Like, we, we helped start the Game Artisans in, in 2008, and um, so it's, we're, we're all, like, pretty closely knit. And so, uh, to be honest, like, we don't, we don't have, like, super, super detailed, um, you know, contracts for how all of these things are supposed to work. I mean, we try to discuss things beforehand, you know, to, to be prudent and things like that, but a lot of it is, is very kind of vague, um, but we have, you know, we try to sort of fit into roles that make sense for what we can bring to the table and stuff like that. Um, and, and so far that, that framework has worked really well. Um, so yeah, I'm hoping that I'm hoping that it doesn't explode in our faces, but uh, I think, <laughs> I think we've got a pretty good thing going. And um, yeah, I think, like I would, I would definitely be rather uh, working with these guys than pretty much anybody else. And, and so, what are you doing right now? Let's let's talk about what you're doing right right to, at this moment. Uh, well, right now I am sort of bouncing back and forth, emails, coordinating stuff for the Santorini app, which will be along fairly soon. It's um, we don't have a specific release date for that because we want to make sure it's all polished and everything. But the actual uh, game and everything is basically together. Most of the AI is in. You can play a bunch of matches, and so it's you know it's a matter of getting it to that Roxley level where we feel happy putting it out. Um, and aside from that, I'm playtesting three different things. I'm not sure how much I'm supposed to talk about any of them. One of them is the Steampunk Rally expansion, uh, and I'm uh, playtesting those. I'm trying to playtest um, a couple of times a week at least. So uh, going fairly hardcore on on development stuff mostly. I think you're allowed to talk about your own game. <laughs> Am I? I don't know. Well, Gavin hasn't officially announced either of these. There's three games that I'm working on that are specifically related to Steampunk Rally, and one of them is the, just the expansion. Okay, we'll, 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 we'll stop you there so that yeah. Gavin doesn't get his, like, knickers in a knot. Yeah, I don't want to, like, um, take the wind out of his sails on either of the <laughs> other two things. Right. I'm excited about all of them. 
So we, we have, hey, we have a new, we have Dr. Bray in the house. What's up? Yo, yo, can you hear me? I can hear you, but I can't see you. You look like a donkey donkey. <laughs> I, I am a donkey donkey, but uh, I don't know how to turn on my camera here. I tried to, and it said you've got control of it. <laughs> oh, I do. Oh, you know what? I do. Uh, okay. So let me see if I can turn that on. Sin, I don't want people looking at my pretty face. Sin is the technical difficulty. Uh, no, what happened was, so you should just be muted. You should, you should be visible though. Okay, one second. Let me see if I got camera control here. Well, while we're at it, why don't you just introduce yourself and Sin can, uh, can kind of work on the technical side there, Paul. So, Paul, go ahead. Oh, okay. and... Yeah, go ahead and talk about what you do at Roxley. Okay, so yeah, what that normally means is uh, if you're contacting us for, for whatever reason, uh, gen uh, generally speaking, I'm the one answering the emails, I'm the one answering the Facebook messages, that sort of thing. Uh, I do an awful lot of demo work too. If you meet us at a con, I'm probably the one teaching you our game. And I try to make myself available for things like this too, when, uh, and <laughs> when, the, when the taxi doesn't take a wrong turn on the way home, <laughs> I'm usually able to do it. Excellent, excellent. And you're also a designer, of course, and you're working on development with the Roxley team as well? Yes. Uh, as Oren said, um, we can only give some information about that sort of thing because, you know, announcements need to be made at the correct time and place. But sure. uh, uh, as you already know, there is a Steampunk Rally expansion in the works, and so I help Oren with the playtesting of that. Well, I didn't know until already... Oren told me. <laughs> oh, or, I'm assuming well, Oren told you that. Oren? Yeah. Oh, I did. Yeah, that's, that's the one that's purple. Your thunder. No, no, <laughs> no. I, I kind of and I kind of played that one at the last uh, last summer, I think, when I was uh, when I was out. And uh, we are also sure working, of course, on a, a Santorini expansion. Neither of those are a really big secret, so we can tell you about those. Okay, cool, 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 cool. Uh, and, uh, I don't know. So, I guess. Uh, the, the other, of course, the big news is I assume at some point we'll talk about brass, but I have no, only been no. temporarily involved in that. No, we're not talking about it. We already talked oh, about it. Brass is not important at all. Of brass course, nobody is, wants no. to hear about that, right? It's no. not, it's not yeah, nobody cares about brass. That's a, that's a non issue. Actually, uh, you, you missed Matt. Matt was on already showing brass off from the gathering, so. Really? We already got, got our, him. We, got our brass we, we actually oh, yeah. hooked him in. We did oh, get fantastic. our brass. So, yeah. That's how important we are. That's what happens when a show plays yeah, pretty much. Uh, Chris, tell me about um, – Chris, are you there, by the way? Can you hear yes, me? Yes, I can hear you. Is it better Excellent. without the video on for you? Yeah, for some – it's uh, I'm on Wi-Fi, and I've streamed from this Wi-Fi before, but I'm, I'm having a little bit of issues with the Google Hangouts. I see a Paul. <laughs> Paul's here. Yay. I, I'll blame Canada for that. The rest of us are all in Canada. I don't know. Maybe that's a thing. Oh, um, maybe. Okay, Chris, I wanted to ask you a couple questions because you've been you've been really super active in the – uh, designers and publishers forum, specifically mm -hmm. around some questions that you had. And I wanted to know, A, what prompted these questions, and B, what you thought of the answers you've got from the community of designers, developers, and publishers out there. Uh, the first one was, the question that you had was about uh, providing the tools for your customers to literally hack your own game. Mm -hmm. So what did you do? How was the response from... Um, from the backers, and what did the response from the other designers and publishers end up being? 
So that was that uh, question wasn't raised by me, but I did get involved in that conversation. Oh, okay, okay. And I know what you're talking about. But this is something that actually was just discussing with my co-designer, Matt, uh, two nights ago. So for our game, The Last Garden, when we were doing stretch goals for our Kickstarter campaign, we sort of came up with this idea of doing what we call hack packs. And Matt and I are uh, very much pro designer. We want everyone to try their hand at game design. We consider ourselves like the Bob Ross of game design. We want everyone to give it a shot. And so what we thought would be cool would be to provide uh, the backers of the Kickstarter uh, with components for the game that they could use to design their own expansions. Uh, right, right, right. And so we, you know, we commissioned art, we commissioned graphic design, we, we you know, got new components that are just designed so that people can take them and uh, hack the games themselves. Uh, so this came up with um, sort of came to a head recently because with our upcoming game, um, it's not really like The Last Garden in that the game that we're developing now is designed to be very expandable and is designed to have expansions. And so the question that I think was raised by, um, I don't remember who exactly, uh, it was the Kim, I think Kim Brayback from, uh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. from, from Good Games. They were, the question that came up was, what do you do when the community is super passionate about your game and they're hacking it, but they are coming up with ideas that you are also developing on the side for future expansions? And that was sort of how it all came, to, came together. Right. And that is an excellent question. Um, actually, Oren. Paul, what do you guys think of that question? What do you do? Into community management, dude. Well, I know that uh, Paul has definitely had some uh, issues in this area trying to navigate that those waters with Santorini. Maybe you can talk about that a little bit. Uh, I have I have two sort of contrasting uh, answers to that. Um, before I wanted to be a game designer, I wanted to be a writer, and there's a, a, a famous incident in the writing world where a fanfic author, uh, it was Marion Zimmer Bradley who was the author, I believe, and her world was opened, the Dark Overworld was open to fanfic. She gave them permission to write in it. And one of them wrote a story which was very, very similar to something she was working on and then sued her and mm. won. And this is why so many uh, writers are opposed to fan fiction, And this is why it is a serious issue that you have to pay some, some attention to. Uh, having said that as well, um, fortunately, I, I don't know of anyone in the game design world who has had this this problem yet, uh, knock on wood. Um, the, the example that I like better is also from the writing world, and it's uh, an author, one of my favorite authors named Jim Butcher, and he... Um, recruits his big fanatics to be to be helpers. So he'll, he'll have people send him a, uh, a message saying, hey, in book seven, this obscure character was mentioned as being married, and in book three, that, that, that character didn't have a spouse. What's up with that? And so he always invites these people to be part of his beta team. And uh, I think, generally speaking, that's a better solution. And uh, to a certain degree, we use that with the Santorini uh, rulebook because the game has been in existence for a very long time now, and there's some people out there who, who know it inside out and are very, very good at it and have a lot of their own homemade content already. And so we were able to, to reach out to several of those people, and you'll see them credited in, uh, in the current and the upcoming Santorini rulebooks as, uh, as part of the rules team. And um, the rulebook would be a mess without them, honestly, because there's so many combinations. You know, we're up to 57 gods and heroes, and it's just you need a computer to track all the possible interactions. Um, so having a, you know, a couple of decades playing the game is almost as good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that actually you know, really leads to a couple other questions that 
were raised in the publisher forums as well. Uh, I'm going back to Chris on this one. In terms of your question, I think this was legit your question, Chris, a uh, different one, was that you were wondering about how to protect your IP mm. from being exploited in a certain particular way. Can you explain your question uh, from your point of view? Because I think I got it twisted up a little bit, um, mm. but yeah, if you can give your question, I'll give my answer, and then we can talk about it from there and bring the Roxley guys in. Yeah, so this is cool because I actually get to actually explain it, which I may, might be a little bit easier than me trying to uh, write it out. Mm -hmm. uh, but basically what's happening, and I already mentioned that we have a, a game that is the first game that 1000 XP is actually signed from an outside designer. And so we're working with this designer, or we haven't signed it yet, but we're, we're in talks to negotiate the contract. Uh, and because Matt and I are publishers who are also designers, we want to try to put forth a very uh, designer-friendly contract. And so one of the things that came up uh, was this designer would like the opportunity to have right of first refusal for uh, expansions of the game in the future. Mm -hmm. The issue is that the world that we are going to theme this game in is actually uh, Matt and I's intellectual property. So right. we were trying to figure out a way to uh, structure a contract so that the designer could uh, get right of first refusal on any of the mechanical derivatives. Like, I mean, all of us are gamers, so we know, you know what an expansion to a game is. And so if it's an expansion to the game that they designed, that they would get a right to, um, to design those expansions or at least a first crack at it. Uh, however, we would be free, this is Matt and I, would be free to design other games that are within that world as well. And that's kind of where uh, it, it came up because we wanted to structure a contract that... Um, would not basically give them the rights to the IP, but would give them rights to that product line, if that makes sense. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Oren and Paul, what do you guys think of that? Well, um, I don't feel like I have a real good sort of elegant black and white answer for that. I have I have heard of real life examples, which I probably shouldn't go into detail about, where a publisher published a, a game that took place in someone else's world that they had created and more or less informed the designers, okay, this is happening. Um, so I know that some people will consider that to be, uh, I, mean, I, I obviously, I mean, if I was the designer of that question, yes, absolutely, I want protection against that. I think one of the problems, though, is um, the um, sort of the eternal problem that you can't copyright elements of a game other than uh, like artwork and text and things, uh, unless you're going to go to the trouble of trademarking it. And presumably, if you're in a battle with your publisher over that, and you're, you're trademarking and copywriting things without their sort of explicit cooperation, um, like you have an adversarial relationship with that publisher. And so maybe the best solution is to um, have a good relationship with people. And obviously, that's that's. I mean, from a business standpoint, that's. There's a lot of people who would immediately mock me for saying that. That's not how you do business. You need to protect yourself, right? Um, so I, I don't have a good answer for that. Mm -hmm. um, what yeah. do you think, Oren? If, if we started uh, publishing uh, Steampunk Rally verse uh, stuff without consulting, yeah. how would you react I don't know. to it's, it's It's a sticky thing because, I mean, technically Gavin totally owns like all of the IP for Steampunk Rally. So like I would totally be cool with him doing doing other games. You know, if... if um, Let's say you did a, a steep dice rolling game or something like that wouldn't that wouldn't bother me. But like 
I think it would be weird if he did something that was like very closely connected to either a game I was working on or something I was interested in and just like didn't talk to me, cut me out of it. Like I could see, I could see where it would get weird if we weren't sort of uh, talking it out. And, and I would expect him to come to me and be like, hey, do you have a problem if so-and-so develops this thing? Um, you know, because it does, it sort of feels like my baby, but I realize like legally I have, you know, no, no ownership of, of that IP. Um, but I presumably have some kind of sort of moral ownership of, of some of those ideas and mechanics. So it's kind of, yeah, it is a very uh, fuzzy kind of thing. And I'm glad that we're sort of trying to build this thing together rather than me being totally freelance and doing stuff all over the place right now. Yeah. I, I am in favor of protecting themselves and writing an intelligent contract. Obviously, you should try and do the best you can in that respect. But I, I think this also comes down to that whole sort of thing of like once you're going to court, you've already lost. Even if you win the court right. battle, you have lost yeah. by the fact that you are in court <laughs> battling somebody who you should be partners with. So, yeah. Um, yeah. That's yeah. exactly it. And it, it, it kind of, I, I, it's, I'm, I'm currently in, in courses right now and we were talking about plagiarism specifically. And it's funny that it's, it's not about actual uh, ownership, especially in, in academia. I mean, you're always going to be basing, you're always going to be cribbing here and there. There's always going to be mechanics, for example, in games that you're going to share, but it's a question of ethics, uh, not necessarily of law in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. And it, it, what I'm hearing is the, the relationship being extremely important. We've been talking about relationships with clients, with persons who may be co-contributors and persons who, who, uh, who you may be uh, hiring as a designer. Mm -hmm. But maybe we can kind of pass over to Chris to see. So, how? What is your uh, kind of strategy on relationship with your with your clients? Like outside of this idea of everyone should be a game designer, how else do you interact with your clients and and uh, and build that community around your product? Well, see, I, I think for for us, it's a, it's for this particular project. Uh, it's interesting because the designer that we're working with, it, we have a very, very good relationship with. And, uh, you know, basically I was looking as a publisher, I was like, I want something that I can put in, in this contract that gives that designer a peace of mind, sort of uh, mostly because I've been talking to some people recently and I'm, I'm also will not name names, but, you know, we all have, we all know designers or we all know of designers who have designed games and then had expansions created for those games that weren't, uh, weren't consulted. They didn't consult the original designer of, of that product. Uh, I, that's happened relatively recently and that's kind of why it was fresh in my mind. Uh, and, you know, full disclosure with, with this particular uh, designer, you know, they saw Sen's response, which is basically like, you know, a, we'll make a good faith effort to involve you in, in the process. And they were more than comfortable with that. Um, but I just thought it was a little bit curious. You know, this is new to us. We're new to publishing and we're new to, you know, signing contracts with designers. But I thought it was a little bit odd that this isn't something that is sort of commonplace. Uh, we actually, we spoke to um, a lawyer. I actually spoke to a lawyer uh, a day ago uh, about this and they're a board game, you know, lawyer. And I had to explain sort of my line of thinking because it wasn't sort of a common practice. So for us being, you know, new to the community, 1000 XP considers our alignment chaotic good. So we want to, <laughs> so we want to do good by designers and we want to do good, but we're also you know, comfortable sort of bucking up against the tradition. And so if our contract is going to be a little bit different than what a designer might be able to get from someone else, because we're willing to, 
you know, give up a little bit more or something like that, then we're okay with that. Um, but really it comes, like, I think that it really comes down to relationships. And so much of this industry is built on relationships that more so than, you know, the finance industry or, you know, some other industries, uh, that really carries a lot of weight, right? Like we don't want to be that publisher who has, gets a reputation of, you know, ripping designs away from designers to exploit them, you know, by going to other folks for the expansions. Well, I remember there was some sort of issue with, I think it was pandemic. There was a printing where uh, they switched artists and then the, the, the artist who did the old art was upset that they weren't involved with a new project, I believe. I, I don't know if I have the details of that correct, but it's not, I guess it's not just designers that, that have this sort of issue. Like it's kind of, there's a lot of fuzziness about you have like all these people on various types of monetary bases come together and make this thing and then when you want to do more with the thing, like it, it gets, I think it's it's prone to get into to weirdness. There's like the famous uh, thing of like like Goldeneye for N64. Everybody loves that game, and like they basically can't do a re a reissuing of it just because the IP is is scattered across you know Microsoft and Rare and and the Bond owners and all that crap. So it's actually there's a there's a really hilarious uh, anecdote that uh, the it guys is so made. hilarious that I'm gonna laugh. Is it, it almost is. So okay. the guys who made uh, who made uh, uh, Starfleet Battles, I think it's Amarillo Design Bureau. Amarillo Design Bureau. Amarillo Design yeah, Bureau. Right. So they said every two years they would get a call from a new junior lawyer at Paramount who had just seen that there was this damn game with Star Trek IP pla plastered all over it. And they'd get a <laughs> cease and desist every two years, like <laughs> almost clockwork without fail, saying you shall yeah, blah, 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 blah. And he'd have to explain, no, look here, I have this <laughs> and I have permission and screw you. Uh, so yeah, it, it occurs. But um, I also kind of wanna, wanted to bring up that when we're, we're talking about clients, we're talking about designers, we're talking about all these people we have relationships with. We, I've heard the word relationships several times. What we're talking about now uh, is a, a community, but B, we're not talking about clients, designers, and, and whatnot. We're talking about stakeholders. Uh, mm -hmm. We're actually all stakeholders in a community functioning well. And to some degree, that functioning is lubricated by money changing hands to buy a game or to pay a designer or to pay an artist. In another way, it's lubricated by us simply keeping our word with the people that we're working with, be it you know whatever part of that community that is an ethical way of, of dealing with and building a community. And so that, that kind of impresses me when say Steve Jackson, even though he owns his company outright, he produces a, what he calls his, his annual report to stakeholders, which is kind of a play on the annual report to shareholders. Mm -hmm. He just writes it, posts it. And like, this is what the, the company did this year. Here's what we're doing. Uh, and he realizes that players, designers, developers, everyone, they're stakeholders, and they're all part of this thing. It's a community, and we have to maintain it that way. So yeah, like it's it's just interesting, kind of talking about specifically around this, um, around the the kickstarters that are just just winding down and just starting up, uh, engaging the community and and getting that uh, getting that that uh, kind of barn raising mentality of everyone building a game from every angle uh, and uh, being able to put it out into the world. It's, it's, it's everyone's work. It's not just kind of a designer and a publisher, you know, mm -hmm. I really like that language you just used. That's a really good way to look at it. And I think that just totally explains why 
when a company screws up, you know, when they do something and them, that's why, because they feel like their stake has been screwed with, right? They feel like somebody has taken their emotional and often their financial investment and messed with it. And uh, yeah, that, that, I'm, thank you. I'm taking that away from this conversation. I mean, I mean, pe people legit feel betrayed, betrayed, yeah. like stabbed in the back when a Kickstarter doesn't, doesn't, follow through on their promises, right? Mm -hmm. um, or when United Airways drags you off their plane. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's it's that kind of thing where- Roxley hasn't done that yet, but we'll- Yeah, right? <laughs> don't, don't even start. You gotta, gotta go to WestJet and start doing that. Um, <laughs> oh, Oren, I wanted to ask you actually a question, and, and you might, I don't know if you can share the details of this, but when you said that, uh, you know, Roxley as a whole owns Lock, Stock and Barrel, the concept of Steampunk Rally, did you come into, the design with it being steampunk rally or was it something else and then gavin changed it into steampunk rally it, it was like the old name i like <laughs> oh yeah 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 the original title was tesla's wager uh which oh, right. I, feel, I do remember that yeah, I yeah. Like that, but i do nine years ago yeah yeah i, I started it, yeah eight or nine years ago when i first came up with it and i still like that name but i do i think the steampunk rally is a much more you see it in the board game geek and you're like, oh, I know what that is, which is, is nice. Um, yeah, I, I, on the one hand, um, I do feel like it was like a thing that I came up with and sort of, you know, developed in my head and was a, like a very integral part of the the game mechanics. Uh, but I think that it very much belongs to Roxley because of the amount of of time and effort and and just all of the things that have gone into creating like the visual language and all of the characters and like it's just blossomed into so much more uh, than the original uh, seed of, of the idea that I had. So it makes a lot of sense to me that this is like a, a Roxley thing. Um, and, I, and it makes, I mean, Gavin can do much more with that IP than I can as a, as a person. So it makes sense also to me to sort of, uh, to hold onto that ship as, as a barnacle and, and ride that rather than trying to retain <laughs> that's, some sort of- <laughs> That's a very funny picture in my mind, by the way, or, <laughs> well, Barnacle Orin. Barnacle, that's, that's my that's my MSN name. Yeah. No, I, I would I always feel like I would rather have uh, a little piece of a very big pie than to try to fight for a larger piece of a of a small pie. That's mm -hmm. that's sort of always my my mentality. Just because I mean, if nothing else, my my own time is limited. So I would rather be working on a whole bunch of projects and doing the stuff that I enjoy rather than trying to be like, I'm going to try to see this particular thing through to the end. Like, I, there's no way that I could ever run a, a game publishing studio. It's just not what I would enjoy doing, spending my days on. So uh, kudos to Gavin for, for sort of taking that on himself. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So, um, so when we go into a game with all the IP created uh, into a contract like that, um, <clears throat> So there's some publishers who will say, uh, you know, we want that. We want to own that lock, stock, and barrel. Um, my answer to that would be, well, then you better pay me for it in some way, shape, or form, like more than just well, I should get a bigger cut of royalties or there's going to be something that says, and yes, they invest a lot. Like I, I don't doubt they invest a lot of money into the branding, into the trade dress, into the graphic design, all those things. Um, however, my point of it is that it's my idea. That was my idea first. This game is based on the idea. And if you don't want to change the idea, if you say, I love that idea, we're going to make this game about, uh, I don't know, about, you know, elves and dwarves building a city. Yeah, or whatever. <laughs> um, and that was the original idea that I came with. 
then I'm going to have some contention when they say, okay, now we own that. I, I, that okay. uh, Unless it's contractually agreed upon. So I, that's I, very I, true. I have a question uh, about that though. Yeah, yeah. So, so if, if that's the case then, uh, then if you go to a publisher and you're like, here's my idea, and they're like, okay, we like the, the core mechanisms, but we're going to retheme it. And because we're going to retheme it, we're going to give you a lower cut. Like that doesn't work both ways, right? Oh, no, it would in that case. I said, if you're going to retheme it and get all the new art, not that we made art, but the ideas behind it. Um, sure. So for a lot of the games that we've done where we've come up with the intellectual world that it is in, we are involved like daily on deciding, you know, is that elf the right look? Right. You know, is, is, that the, is that the right height for that dwarf? And if I'm involved that way and you want my input and decisions, then I need to... I need to get a part of that or have a part of that if this is something that you want to take on and do and buy outright and you know buy that idea or you know use that idea then you know either I'm getting a a, a different cut in a different way it's not about the money to be honest it's about it's about protecting something that I've invested in upfront right. uh, time and energy and thought um, yeah I, I'm a stakeholder in my own IP, right? And so for me to just give it up to somebody when they say, yeah, we'll sign it and then just blank it. Oh, now it's ours. Well, it's actually not, right? Because, um, you know, you have to, by law, dissociate all those things apart and say, okay, who has what and who owns what? And if the contract doesn't state that I am getting recompensed for the actual world, the world building part of it, then you don't own it. I own it. I created it. And you'll see this, you know, I mean, if you go to create your own comics, uh, this is a huge issue in comic books uh, where creators were getting, you know, Batman, right? You know, that Batman guy? Yeah. Uh, so if you look at the history of Batman, Bob Kane, and all that kind of stuff, and actually some other people, um, then you'll find out that, you know, the, the estate of Bob Kane, you know, they have to fight tooth and nail to get anything out of DC and all those types of things until a couple, you know, maybe a couple years ago when finally, finally, you know, people said, okay, look, this is dumb. This guy is the guy who created it. You've been making hand over fist money off of this character and, you know, he's dying in poverty or whatever, right? Um, mm -hmm. And not that I think I'll die in poverty, but that there has to be some respect for creators out there. If they and this is actually what you're asking for, Chris, is you're you're trying to protect your creative world and say, okay, how do I just how do I separate that from the mechanical part of what a right. designer does, right? And I think you're doing it in the right way to be, and, and that's just my my layman's ideas. Um, and the nice thing about the forum that we posted on is that eventually a lawyer did step up and say, hey, um, actually that thing that Sen posted is actually really pro-designer. Right. And it was funny because all the other people thought it was pro-publisher. So no, well, this, it, is, this is actually what I like. This is what I want. Yeah, and, and to be clear, like, uh, you know, we, we want to be a, uh, a you know, pro designer company as well. And so yeah. we're trying to give, you know, we know that we can, for, we can structure the contract and just take everything and then, you know, be good to go. But we want this designer to be as involved as they would like to be in the process moving forward. And in this particular case, they don't really care about the, the world. They care about the mechanisms and they want to be involved in future expansions because they're, they want to explore the mechanisms more. Um, but you know, it's, it's, uh, for us, it's kind of just trying to cover our bases in a way that, that 
everyone can get what they want. And it sounded like when I asked the question initially, it was like that was I was asking something in another language. Like people were like, I don't understand what what do you mean? Like the the publishers either get it or they don't. And I was like, well, you know, what about this? And that's when you said, you know, obviously when you start getting into hypotheticals, then it becomes a little bit um, yeah. sort of you know complicated. Uh, but I but like I said, I spoke to a lawyer. Uh, they I explained to them, you know, what I was looking for. It sounded like. Uh, it would be something that they'd be into. I'd be happy to share, um, you know, uh, a piece of that clause with the with that forum or that uh, thread once I get it back and kind of go over it. Yeah, Andy in the feed. Andy's a comic book guy, and and he's a good friend of mine. And he just wrote the words "work for hire" versus ownership and creator rights, and that's exactly what we're talking about here. Uh, work for hire. You pay me, I make it, you own it. You own it. The person who paid me owns it. Creator rights, totally different. You license something from me, that's my idea. You just license it. You are allowed within the sp yes. scope of the contract to do something with it, whatever I agree to, because it's my product. The same thing when I take on IP work. When I take on IP work from Toho or from uh, Legendary, I have to submit to their rules. I can't, Godzilla can't talk. There's no way Godzilla talks ever, right? Um, if I'm working for Marvel, uh, then I, I can't, you know, make somebody do something that they're not able to do. It's just impossible. Um, and so there, there's a bunch of things in, in that whole idea between work for hire and ownership of, of creator rights that I, I don't think has found its way into game design like it might. Yeah, it's going to have to because production is going to get more and more intense as time goes on. I mean, what you're talking about is creative work. It's work. The stuff that you're doing to to attempt to maintain a cohesive uh, world is is work, and nobody recognizes it as such. But you see on the other side, people in uh, forums who have got their first contract in front of them and they say, oh my God, what have I signed up to? The publisher shall own the work and it's the work and, the co and it's like, okay, no, this is how a contract is written. It's actually okay. This is what yeah. you're getting paid for. This is how it works. Uh, but no, it's it's kind of fun talking about that kind of wonderful stuff. But well, the, the fact that Gavin does like the, the contract that I have with him for, for Steambug Rally is like extremely, extremely generous. So that definitely probably colors my, uh, my perspective on it. If he gave me the sort of industry standard boilerplate, I would, I would probably be like a little bit more trying to make sure that I don't get screwed over going forward. Well, well that's another point too, right? If somebody's generous with you, and you can see where they're going with the, your baby, you're willing to give that baby over, right? And say, okay, yeah, you can do more with it than I can. Um, it's when you're getting a very tight margin on an already tight margin product that you say, okay, I need to hold on to some of this because if ever this falls away, I need to be able to say, okay, here's, uh, you know, game X second edition. And I want game X, the name game X to still be something that holds weight because it'll sell better or whatever. As opposed to when, you, you know, you got, you, everybody on their shelf has games that are differently named, but the exact same game is something else that they, but the same author, right? Um, because of this type of thing where somebody owns the trade dress and the trademark to the name. Uh, and then that game, that second game, which is the same game, doesn't necessarily do as well, but it's the same thing. And why? It's because of brand recognition. So I understand when publishers say, yes, you know, we put a ton of money into brand recognition, into developing the trade dress, the trademark, the logo, the look, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, but I'm getting, you know, 
what, six and a half percent or seven percent. So let's talk about where that idea came from and think about, you know, what are my rights in this situation? Mm-hmm. And I, all I'm saying to publishers out there who think they own my stuff or any of that stuff that the designer designed is that there's enough to go around for everybody to be happy without stealing from a designer. Mm-hmm. Right. Because that's, that's actually kind of what it is. You know, if you legally steal something, it doesn't make it right. It just means you legally found, they didn't read their contract or you found a loophole or something. And it's it's actually kind of disingenuous. There are legal ways to do unethical things. Oh, of course. That's what <laughs> yes. that's what the law well, is kind of about. And it makes a lot of business sense from a publisher standpoint to keep a good relationship with their designers because then you get them, like me, I'm doing three more games in the same uh, universe. You know, I'm presumably... Uh, like you, you want people making cool robot gardening games for for years to come. You don't want to burn all of these bridges for a few extra bucks. So. Right. Exactly. Yeah, and, and that's the thing, right? Is that is that we're trying to look at this from the perspective of, of the designer, and it gets very muddy because, as we mentioned earlier in the show, you know, uh, game mechanics aren't protectable. Like it's it's the you know the actual mechanisms in the game anyone can copy that. And so, you know, what I'm trying to say is like, I have a designer who, who designed an awesome game and we're super excited, you know, for it. And I want to make sure that that designer, uh, can is, uh, I want to promise that designer that when we make expansions to this game in the future, that they will also be involved in that process. Uh, because that's what I would want as a designer. I would feel, I would, you know, feel very put off if if I sold someone a design and, you know, the game blows up or whatever. And now all of a sudden, you know, they have, they're like, oh, well, we can just make expansions and we don't need to pay Chris any more money. We can just, you know, take it and run, which, again, might be legal and might be okay uh, from, a, from a legal standpoint. But, you know, I would feel burned as a designer and that's not how we would want to treat designers. And so I, I that's why I'm looking for something in the contract where I can just, go to the designer and say, look, we're so serious about this that we actually, you know, put it in writing that we want you to be involved in the future. We're not going to just cut you out because, you know, it saves us 6% or whatever. Right. And so good faith to me means that, uh, but I'm a nice person. So I don't know. <laughs> that's the problem, right? And, right. And this designer, he's okay with good faith too, if that's what it, if that's the best we can do. But right. Maybe we can do better, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Right. We, we possibly could. And I think the lawyer that answered on the thread, um, his, uh, answers were really kind of good in a way that indemnifies you um, from, you know, recourse. So there, there's there there are ways to legally word everything so that everybody gets what they need um, without having to resort to, you know, unethical, underhanded tactics. That's that's kind of all I'm saying. And I don't believe that anybody who put that who who said that any of the responses that are contrary to what I believe in that thread are underhanded or trying right. to be underhanded. Right. My point really is this: is that you really need to think about the um, the creators as you know an actual person in the in the chain of <laughs> things. Yeah. Right? As a stakeholder. As a stakeholder, and as yeah. somebody who is actually probably the best ally you will ever have to push that game who is the best, who knows that game the best and who will support that game long after everybody else is, right? Is that designer. And it's important when you, when, you know, talking to back to Dylan's point about how everyone in the process is a stakeholder. If I love a game and the company announces an expansion and I learned that the original designer had nothing to do with that game, 
I also feel like, hey, like I want, I want that designer involved. I loved like that game, you know. So I think that when you look at it from the standpoint of consumers as well, like, of course, if they love something, they want that person to be involved with it again. So it's really like 360 degrees. Yeah, that's an interesting question too, because another person on the on that same forum, we're actually uh, just answering forum questions today, apparently, uh, asked this. They said, you know, oh, hey, I have a, we have an idea about games we want in our library. Um, how do we go about getting that? Is ghostwriting a thing? And my answer to them was, yeah, you actually want a named designer or any designer. You want their name on that product because that name will eventually, hopefully, carry clout and sales with them. You know, like Eric Lang. Hey, Dylan, we actually mentioned it. <laughs> yes, we have reached peak Eric Lang. <laughs> yeah, uh, but my, my point is this, is that if somebody is a designer and their name gets out there and people like their games, exactly what Chris, you're saying is that it will carry over. Like if Oren gets associated with, and he is already obviously associated with Steampunk Rally and, you know, Steampunk Rally, or it's already a dice game. So Steampunk Rally, the tile lane game or whatever. Oh, there's tiles in there. Really think. Steampunk <laughs> Rally, the bluffing game or something. Steampunk Rally, right? dexterity game. Yeah, yeah. Steampunk Rally, crooked all. Yeah. Don't tell them about it, Oren. <laughs> yeah. So if, if that is true, then people will look at that game and go, oh, it's that world. It's the same designer. I want that. It's exactly what you're saying, Chris, that we can get, we can make everybody happy without mm -hmm. doing silly things. And, and with keeping people's names on their products, I think is important, right? Um, it's an it's a era of designer games where, and people want to get in contact with the designers. Uh, Oren, how, much, how many people have emailed you specifically rather than the community about, uh, or rather than Roxley in general, about you know, Steampunk Rally? Do you get any? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's really, really nice, actually. Like, I, it, it's gotten like this weird traction all around in the, the world. Like, every once in a while, I'll just get a random like, BGG message from just somebody, I don't know, in Brazil or, or something that's just, just randomly like, hey, our group really likes your game. And it, like, it feels super good to just kind of get, you know, it's not like a constant stream, but just like random fan mail from these places where you're like, oh, they're playing it there. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and, so, I, and so we need to, we need, and, and you know, Roxley recognizes that because, you know, Gav's a smart guy. Uh, and Chris, you're a smart guy too for, to, for saying, you know, I want to build relationships with the people that I, that I already like their stuff. I mean, why not, right? I think any designer, like any designer name has the potential to become a brand or is some sort of brand, even if it's a bad brand, <laughs> you know, you, you, you're, you're gonna even even if you never heard of that person, you can go on BGG, look up their their things, and you're finding out. Oh, should I back this Kickstarter? Well, this guy did this game that I hate, or whatever. So I think uh, it's I think it's very um, important to try to keep that you know the level of quality up, but just to yeah, I, th I think it's definitely beneficial to a publisher to sort of ride that um, that success or or to publicize even somebody who's not famous yet. It might pay off, like you say, years down the road. Mm -hmm. And it's people like Paul who are maintaining those links with all of the community. So, Paul, why don't you tell us about how it is maintaining that kind of uh, visibility? Maintaining visibility? No, maintaining those communications with the with the community. Uh, well, to to a certain degree, I actually feel like we don't have the time to to properly <laughs> do it. We have to take a very um, reactive role in terms of having people contact us and then we answer their questions or, or you know, um, try to um, try to, to connect with them in whatever best way we possibly can, just because um, we're still a growing company with, with a, you know, a, a massive workload to, to staff ratio, uh, which is why you don't have Gavin on the show right now. <laughs> right. Um, 
uh, although having said that, I do make uh, a lot of efforts um, to reach out to conventions. And um, uh, one, one thing I've been doing a lot lately is uh, reaching out to school uh, board game groups, uh, teacher, teachers to, uh, using board games in the classroom, that sorts of things, because Santorini was basically designed for that. And then Steampunk Rally is also very, very applicable for, for that because it uses, you know, basic maths and it's got the, uh, the, the fantastical approach to real historical inventors and mathematicians and, and scientists. Um, and so a lot of people are really, really inspired by that. And um, particularly we get a lot of good feedback about the, uh, the number of uh, female characters in the game. Have mm -hmm. the girls play that. Um, so I'm able to send a lot of games to these people and that, um, that creates, I, like, I think community management is a bit of a uh, misnomer. Um, I think you're right to say that it's establishing and, and maintaining connections, and that can only really be done plus one at a time. You know, mm -hmm. like I can reach a large uh, audience by speaking on the Meeple Sear show or by sending a reviewer a copy of the game or something, but I haven't really made a connection with those people unless I'm doing it personally, even over the internet. Uh, but I mean, I guess better would be at a convention or something. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really good point, Paul, that uh, that face-to-face -face time that the fans are actually seeking that interaction with the designers, with the publishers at conventions is so much more tangible and powerful than, you know, this type of thing or, although this is good, I mean, we're starting somewhere. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. But this being is useless. Get out of here. <laughs> yeah. And how are, how are you guys doing it at 1000 XP, Chris? What are you guys doing for community? So like, it's interesting because, uh, you know, my day job, I'm a community and content manager for Mox exactly. Boarding House, which is, uh, you know, two pretty large game stores here in the Seattle area. And so this is something that I focus on on a daily basis. And, and you know, I think to Paul's, you know, point, it's definitely about trying to just make those one-on-one -on -one connections. Uh, obviously, you know, a big part of what we do at 1000XP is our, our entire you know, mission is designed uh, around the, the concept of inspiring imagination and encouraging creativity. Back to what I was talking about before, you know, that's why we do board game design time, which is our YouTube show. Uh, we make content uh, and sort of, I, I'm a fan of content marketing and, I, and something that I enjoy doing. And I really feel that, uh, you know, in the game space, especially because it's such a social um, hobby and it's still a small community in the grand scheme of things, I think, I think content marketing is very powerful because it lets you just create things that other people get to use, you know, raises goodwill for you. And then all, you know, at the end of the day, you launch a Kickstarter, you can say, hey, you know, help me out. Um, but it's, it's, it's interesting to kind of hear, you know, the scope of this conversation is because I think it all really does tie together. You know, Paul here is talking about how, you know, Roxley is still, you know, a, a relatively small company, you know, they don't have the, the bandwidth necessarily to, uh, to deal with the community as a whole. They have to kind of, you know, uh, compartmentalize that a little bit. And that's where someone like, uh, Oren comes in where, Oren, as the designer of the game, is being reached out to by members of the community. He's, you know, having uh, interactions with them as well, and so it really uh, makes it even even underscores it even more the benefit of companies working with designers and having good relationships good relationships with designers, uh, because then then these designers go out there and become, in a, some ways, you know, your community managers. They're the there advocate. in the forums the exactly. Yeah. Uh, so it all really it all really kind of you know, ties together. And, uh, and it, I, I would question, it's interesting, 
the concept of, of a publisher who's uh, wondering about the you know the concept of, of ghost writing or you know or that kind of stuff, I, I'd be curious to see kind of where their their mindset is at because I yeah. can't I can't really think of any upsides to that. I do know that there's I mean like Game Right for example, I don't think they put uh, designers' names on the boxes. Um, so there's some like you know mass companies that that don't do it. Uh, but in general, especially the hobby market, uh, I don't really, I can't really imagine a reason why I would like not want to put. I don't see an up. I don't see an upside to it at all, unless yeah, they're, exactly. unless they're, you know, indemnifying them against something. But I, well, I don't yeah. know why. There's a weird parallel in the video game industry, like back before the first video game crash, where like Atari mm-hmm. wasn't giving credit to to their designers, uh, and there was like a lot of people that left. I think Activision actually started because a bunch of people. A big diaspora from from Atari of people that wanted to put their names, you know, have credits and stuff. And I don't, I don't get it. I don't know why they decided to. And they include them anyway in the Easter eggs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and speaking of credit, Andy Jewett is an artist. He's a great artist. Uh, if you backed Ladder Twenty Nine, Andy's the artist on that. Andy's done artist uh, art for TMG and other games. He's going to be hopefully working on one of mine soon. And he asks, "What about artist credit on game boxes? What do you guys think?" Do the artists get credit on the game boxes? Chris, your thoughts. So this, this came up recently for me. Uh, so we have we did not put uh, Beth Sobel's name on The Last Garden, even though she did art. Uh, and then I did a micro game right before that, which was uh, illustrated by a woman named Beth Hawley, um, and I did not put her name on that either. And in hindsight, I think that I definitely should have or wish I would have put Beth Hawley's name on Under My Bed, which is the micro game I did, because Under My Bed is basically guess who meets Spyfall in a micro game version. Like literally, the card is just her art, and like that's it. And so without her art, the game doesn't work. It doesn't function. Uh, so that was sort of me not really knowing and not really thinking about it. Um, it's something that it's, I regret if I was to you know reprint it, which I, is unlikely. Uh, but if I was to actually print more copies, I would I would include her on that uh, when it came to the last garden uh you know it it wasn't really again not the top of my mind um would i put beth sobel's name on there uh i'm not sure in this particular case i think that you know our game the art is beautiful and the work that beth did is amazing i mean she's beth sobel she's amazing um but it wasn't really uh you know she did the board she did the box but the the game doesn't have a lot of her art uh, uh, in the actual components. Like the card art is all our graphic designer, Justin Treadway. And so it's really kind of a, a collaborative effort. However, there are certain games which I think the art is really sort of at the forefront of the game that it does make sense to, um, you know, put the put the artist there. And so I really think that it's, it's sort of a, a case-by-case basis. But you do have a lot of, like, publishers, like, you know, especially a lot of, like, the, uh, you know, the French publishers and stuff who put the artists on all the boxes, you know, um, so I don't know. I have to kind of revisit it. Like I'm not like diametrically opposed to the idea. I, obviously, I'm I'm pro artist and I want to give the artist credit. So uh, I would have to kind of really look at that hard and see um, what I would want to do with that. But I again, I don't really see the downside. I guess uh, to yeah. it. So you know, if if the artist is like, hey, I I would like my name on the box, I would be like, okay, sure. There's a few funky things going on there because I think like. Maybe it's just me, but there's this kind of lovely feeling of just looking at a box and knowing who the artist was just because of the art. 
And <laughs> you get this kind of like, oh, well, you know, I, I've been a part of the community for this long. I, I know who did the art on this one. And this has definitely got you know, this person's this person's hand on it. So like, there's this kind of this connoisseur kind of snobbish attitude that's in the back of my mind. It's like, it's like oh, if you yes. took a swig of wine and then there was a little voiceover that played that was like, oaky and tart. <laughs> picked, picked by a man with one leg, kind of, you know, like yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah, except you're but looking it, at a game box and saying, oh, Vincent Dutre, right? Yes, exactly. But it's like, on, on the other hand, there are, they're doing work that brings eyes to boxes. Artists, they need to, they need to get the credit. It's, it's, it's really important and difficult and overlooked work. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, try to, try to put a box out without art on it. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Andy said, you know, uh, in all fairness, the board game industry and community has been ridiculously pro artist overall. So, and I, I think we're like that in, in general, pro artist, pro design hobby. People want to know who produces the things they think are cool. Uh, and so, uh, and, and you'll get to know some of the, the more uh, prolific artists like Dutre or Quan Chai or Beth, um, any of those people, you look at their box and you say, oh, yeah, that's done by this person, and you know it. Uh, and so that's a that's a good thing, but if you didn't ever look or their names was, were never places, you'd never know. Mm -hmm. So well, it's, it's nice that they're getting that recognition now. And in some ways, you know, you could, you could extend this, right? Like, uh, you very rarely see developers get credits, uh, like, on, on the box, you know, and mm -hmm. those people are integral, too. So, like... My gut, and I don't. I know this is uh, my gut. Just says that, like I think, if I was to make a product uh, now that it's, I'm conscious of it, I would really have to look and say, okay, who do I feel were the ones who are, you know, really uh, contributing to, you know, this thing, right? Like if I put out Mysterium, Mysterium is, you know, the art is a very integral part of that game. I think that the, the person that did that art. Uh, the game would not be, you know, the same without without that. What if twenty and people so, did the art for that game? Does that then? Then you have the you know Magic the Gathering issue, right. where it's like, mm. you know, like I don't know. Does Mysterium have the artist credits on the cards themselves? I don't know, but Magic does, obviously. Right. Yeah, that's actually interesting. I don't actually. I I don't know. I was. I assume that I'd, it's. I'd have to look. I don't actually have it here. Yeah, back back That's before really yeah back before kind of Roxley became a thing when Gav was doing uh, just graphic art and whatnot he actually headed up kind of the collaboration for the graphic art on Eminent Domain, so I mean his his graphic design is all over the box but there was a ton of art in there that he had to coordinate so it's there's there's a lot more hands that can go into some games just like you were saying Seb. Yeah, like Gav was the art director, basically. I don't, exactly. I don't know if he actually did any illustration for that game at all, except well, iconography. Well, the 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 front, the box front is totally Gav. Oh, it's that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, another taste, question. You know, you just yeah. gotta. Another I, question. I, oh, go ahead. Yeah. I can't let this go by without shouting out to Mr. Cuttington. Because, oh God! Yeah, right. Um, yeah. I have here. Here's the front of of the colored tangerini and the back of the white box edition Sansarini. You can't really see it on the webcam, but it says right there, artwork by David Forrest and Lena Cosette on yeah. the outside of the box. And that is not down here at the front where Rick Gord's name, but um, I, I can certainly verify that, um, that Roxley gives a, a tremendous amount of credit to them because they're amazing. And yes, Gavin does the graphic design, but he works with their artwork on, on most of our games at this point. And um, you're, they're, they're equally stakeholders in your game. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. right. Oh, right. Yeah. As much as, as any other person who contributes that level of work. So yeah. I'm, I personally, and I'm pretty sure Rox Lee, you'd have to ask him for an official policy well, I mean, statement. But you go on a sure Kickstarter. We're all on the same page there. You go on a Kickstarter or you, or you look on the shelf and it's the first impression that you get. So obviously mm -hmm. it's pretty darn important to. Yeah. It sets the so, tone a lot, right? So. Sorry to interrupt you. I just couldn't let that go by without shouting out to them. Mr. No, they're, they're wonderful. And Canadian. So they're great. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, another question from the audience. Um, Sir Bob asks, oh, and, and this is kind of off field, but that's okay. What methods do you use to woo designers? So it goes back to relationships. How do we build relationships with designers? How do you like being uh, really as a designer? You know, for those of us who are designers, and all of us actually in this field are designers. Um, how do we like to be wooed? But then for us as companies, if any of us are companies, how do you you know, bring people in to the fold. What percent is scouting or digging for designs versus obtaining a known designer's next effort? All those questions. Actually, I kind of want to just pop over to Paul because you've got a lot of letters asking from designers. So I, I was, was going to say, uh, how do I woo designers? I check my inbox. <laughs> oh yeah, Paul, Paul has an ongoing series of how not to woo a publisher. <laughs> Although actually, I I have um, I think the positive way a is couple of people though. pointed out to me I need to take a more positive spin on that, and they're yeah. right. Yeah, for sure, they're absolutely right. So my my goal now is if you track me down on Facebook, I'm going to be more often posting the good things people are doing. Uh, contacting us in the first place is the first good thing, uh, including a sell sheet. Uh, you know, describing your game instead of just like, hey, you know, I have a game. Uh, tell me all about it. Give me a summary though, right? So I, like, I don't want to like, if, if there's 17 pages of text, that's fantastic. As long as I can read one paragraph and then know whether or not I want to read those 17 pages of text. Mm -hmm. um, and, then, and then past that, like, let's say you find somebody that you actually don't physically know, like, you know, Gavin and you know, um, well, Gavin would sign that person, but you know, uh, Oren, you know, Adam. This dinosaur guy here. Yeah. Whoever yeah. Is. yeah. So how would you, that, that's how totally... would you... yeah, go ahead. Well, we have kind of an embarrassment of riches here in Calgary in that we, we started as a designer group, mm -hmm. right? So we are surrounded by excellent designers, and at any given point, Gavin could just kind of reach out his hand and grab a good game. So we haven't had the, the um, like, the, the only person we have worked with so far who hasn't been a part of that group is Martin Wallace. Right. Um, <laughs> and that's kind of a good name to have. I haven't said that. I do have a number of prototypes here waiting to be play tested from people who you know I I'd never heard of before they emailed me. Right. And so we're going to be going through the process of building a relationship with them, assuming that the game is something we want to pursue. Yeah. Um, so for me, that again, that just comes down to that that plus one. You get to know them, you talk with them, you, you have a, a you build a relationship with them. The more I know somebody, the more time I spend talking with them, the more we trade feedback on the game, the more we're going to know whether or not we're, or not we're on the same page, and the more yeah. comfortable. I'm going to be saying to Gavin, yes, I really think you should sign this, or I really don't right. think this is so, somebody you'll want to work with. Just you know? so you all remember, just so you all remember, Roxley is not a publisher. <laughs> oh, it's the funniest thing because Gavin will completely, completely stand behind that for like a like a year. He completely said, you know, said we're not a publisher. We're we're design house. We're not a publisher. We're design house. Then he came out of the closet. Yeah, yeah. It's a funny thing. Chris, what about you? What, are, what is 1000 XP doing other than making really cool contracts, uh, good, you know, unbiased contracts that will help you keep, woo, develop relationships with designers? 
so it's this is a, an interesting question for me because you know we at 1000 XP see ourselves as a publisher and a design house. We are designing games that we would not self-publish. Uh, of course, Last Garden was designed by Matt and I, and then we self-published it. But we're also interested in other people's designs. As I mentioned, we uh, are in talks with a designer right now, which is the first time that we're actually going to go outside and publish something that wasn't made by us. Uh, but when I think about the way that we're going to be conducting ourselves in the future moving forward, it's it really comes down to the fact that, like Paul, uh, we have a, a wide selection of people in our area um, that that do design. Uh, I, because I'm part of, you know, sort of the the industry and I have been, you know, podcasting and networking for several years now. Um, I think that I have a, a, a pretty wide net of folks that I know that I would love to work with. And in a lot of ways, like I, I guess I'm interested in giving people an opportunity to, to, to fulfill, you know, their publishing dreams, I guess. So I would be very interested in working with people who are people I have good relationships with that are have never been published or maybe have only been published occasionally. That's interesting to me. Um, but I think that ultimately, like, there are so there are so many designers out there and there's so many publishers out there now that I I really would prioritize sort of what that designer's north star is. I would say what is it that motivates that person, and I would try to get to know them and say, look, like. If you want a game that's going to get into mass market and it's going to, you know, be on the shelves in Target, like that's awesome, but we might not be the right fit for you. If you want to work with us who are kind of quirky and like outside of the box themes and weird stuff, like then, you know, we can make something special together. We can make something quirky together. Uh, but I think that like it's kind of in a lot of ways uh, a, a buyer's market right now. There's a there's a lot of people who are getting into game design, which is awesome. And I think that, you know, you have to find, if I was a designer, I'd want to find a publisher who aligns with my goals and my values and, and focus on them. And as a publisher, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a designer that does the same. Hmm. Okay, cool. And I, I kind of wanted to just mention, go oh, go ahead, just mention about one of the designers that Roxy kind of reached out and grabbed uh for a game kind of outside of the the usual suspect if if either paul or Oren could talk about that one uh well i believe you're referring to mr adam wise who uh, uh he's part of our local design group he kind of came out of nowhere a couple years ago we've been um doing a lot of community outreach to the local uh design community and he showed up at one of our falcon meets with a game and put it in front of the table and it was it was amazing and since then he's kind of really hit the ground running he signed like six different games with like five different companies and his latest one is with us now and it's called guerrilla marketing and um it's gavin wants to pr present it as a parlor game which um a lot of people are going to call it a party game but uh, we're going to present it as a parlor game uh because likewise we don't present ourselves as a publisher <laughs> and uh this, uh, the, 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 I guess the elevator pitch for this is uh, uh, a marketing team has been fired because the guy in charge thought that gorillas could do a better job. So the players are gorillas, and we're being given these acronyms, and we just generate uh, products and then advertising slogans based on these acronyms. And uh, the judgment categories for these are quite hilarious. So it, it's, it's a lot lighter in a very, very different style than the Roxley games uh, you've seen before. It's fantastic. Uh, it's one of my favorite party games. It's uh, we're actually going to be doing a live stream on Parlor Century Box uh, next Monday after the Kickstarter starts. 
So if anybody wants to track me down, I can tell you how to get to that. Um, but yeah, it's it's kind of an example of the the local designers, and I really like what Chris said about your motivation of um, if you're going to work with somebody, you might as well try and like like try not to just sign a game from them, but try and give them them the good experience too, because that increases their stake too, right? Like mm -hmm. if I have a dream game, I really want to make come out there. I'm going to appreciate the publisher who wants to work on that game with me and wants to make that better. So I, I don't know that guerrilla marketing is Adam's uh, um, uh, magnum opus, so to speak, but because he no, already that, signed that, five might be, that might be most of the headhold. Or no, let's see what else is it? Red, Red Death, Mask of the Red Death, or Mask of the Red Death, Head of Household, uh, Leopard Contractors. There's two or three others. Yeah. Has he signed um, Leopard Contractors? He did. Yeah. yeah he wow. Did. Oh, he got all of his signed games so far, except for Ark, except for the one he signed with us. He needs to update that. Adam, if you're watching, go update that. <laughs> well, uh, I have to say, as like a as a designer, I, I there, there's a lot of parts of doing like freelance design that I really really hate. I don't know about you guys, but like the knocking on doors and you know constantly trying to to network and and work out contracts with different folks and stuff like that. It, it's not the part of game design that I enjoy. So th just the fact that I can go to Gavin or, or Gavin can come to me and say, hey, make this game. And then for the next however many years that I'm working on that, I, I have in the back of my mind, oh, this is going to get published. Like it's just, yeah, it's really nice to just be able to focus on, on this, the aspects of the, of the industry that I actually enjoy working on. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Um, like so, Gab. Uh, sorry, Gab. Oren, would you say that you're close to being in-house? Yeah, I, I would say it feels like I am. Like I, I'm not technically uh, like a Roxley employee, but I feel like I'm an in-house designer at this point. That with most most of my time is spent working on Roxley stuff. So, um, and it's when, a when you have you a type in, though, right? of. Uh, oh, sorry. What's that? It's a it's a company you believe in. Oh, absolutely. Your yeah. Stakes no. are high. Right. I, I'm very, very happy with the way that they treat everybody. So I, I feel very, very, very happy to be involved with, with them. Mm -hmm. And sorry, Paul, you were saying? Uh, I was just going to say, for me, it's it's. I, I think it's dangerous to think in a, um, in, about a business this way, but uh, Roxley is very much a family environment. We're, oh, we're, yeah, we're a bunch of very tight friends. We, with know, very we knew that before, right? <laughs> close relationships to each other. And so I'm more than happy to throw some development work at one person or play test for another person or advertise the other person. Like it, it's very much that whole thing where, where anything I do to lift up the tide raises all the boats. Yeah. Yeah. And there are other companies like that. So if you ever get a game signed through a company like Renegade or a company like plan B, um, you're almost their family and it, it's, it's, it's a really nice place to be. And it, it makes up for the low margins in a lot of cases, right? Where it's like, you know, I, I, I want to work with them because they're doing cool stuff or they treat their, uh, they treat the people right um, and they're ethical or they, they do things above and beyond that call of, you know, just cutting me that monthly check or whatever it is, right? So I, I, I definitely think there are companies that, I want to work with for artistic reasons. There are companies I want to work with for, uh, you know, just market penetration reasons. And there are companies that I want to work with because of the feels. And I think those are all legit, right? So Chris, what are, what are, what's 1000 XP going to take away from even just today and say, Hey, that's something we can do to really make the relationships between publisher and designer 
improved by even just five percent? Is there anything from today? Yeah, I mean, I think that there. I mean, we've had a lot of uh, great stuff. I mean, I want to at the top. I want to mention uh, that you know, just this kind of conversation has me rethinking about you know how I'm crediting artists and designers and deve- or graphic designers and developers of, of the game. So that's number one. But to answer your specific question, you know. I think that this concept of uh, this, you know, stakeholders and and really thinking of it as the entire chain from you know publisher through designer through consumer through gamer, right? All of those things uh, to me is very powerful because now when I'm thinking of my relationship with the designer, if if we're at odds, I can approach that designer and say, all right, well, look, let's think about it from this from the concept of the gamers, the stakeholders, like what do they want to see here? Or what would they want to see here? Or, you know, the artists or the graphic designers and really trying to, um, you know, focus everything on the, the, the common goal, I think is really important. And so to me, I like the fact that this gives me another way to sort of frame uh, that message. And, and when I'm having conversations with people on my team, I can say, look, at the end of the day, like the gamers are stakeholders too, you know, so let's, let's really, turn the focus on them, they should have as much of a, a influence on this process as we do. Uh, I think it's important. Mm-hmm. And Paul, what are you taking away from today? Uh, he stole my answer. <laughs> I, I, uh, no, I think, I think you said it very well, Chris. I think that um, absolutely that is the best takeaway for me from this conversation is the, the, the framework of looking at it as, uh, as stakeholders. Like, I think to a certain degree, we all kind of instinctively do that anyways, at least you know the big companies that I, companies that I would think are good. Uh, are kind of following that already, but it's it's a great framework to look at it, and um, it it kind of immediately combines to me with some of the things I've heard Dylan say before about uh, negotiating with people, where you want a, a a wise person will figure out what the other person wants, and that's where you can start with them, right? So I I can make if I figure out that Oren's big motivation is. Um, he wants name recognition, or he wants money, or he wants just to get lots and lots of games out there, and he wants that moment where he runs into a little kid playing his game, and the kid, you know, looks at him with shining eyes. If I can figure out what's the most Klondike important, bar, I want a Klondike bar. A Klondike <laughs> bar, okay, I'll arrange that. Um, well, then I can I can give him a more valuable stake based on that understanding, and so maybe that is the next step I need to focus more in terms of community management is is trying to pay a little more attention to what. Uh, each member of the the whole what what they're looking for in their stake, and and the community manager is is you know I'm a community manager, so the thing I love is that I get to go to the other people in the company and I get to be the voice for the community. I get to tell them like, hey, here's what the community saying. Like, I get to go to bat for for that that member of the uh, of the commu- of the process. So right, what you're loving it almost. One thing I find interesting, especially about doing client service and speaking to people who, um, I guess you could generalize the idea to any people who have an expectation about something. Yep. Um, there is what they say, and then there is what they feel. And what they say is never a very good approximation of what they feel, and what they feel is more important. And if you want to serve a community, finding out and digging down to what they feel is far more important. So, I mean, just like the Klondike bar thing, uh, you can have a negotiation where there's always two winners and that's the best type of negotiation there is. So whenever we're thinking about negotiation, we tend to go directly to contracts 
and contracts are an extremely rigid form of negotiation and they tend to be extremely uh you know point every single point is is uh is underlined and and, uh, and made specific but if you're not addressing the kind of actual inner wants of the people on either side of that negotiation whether it be on paper or simply within the relationship you're not actually negotiating in in full good faith in my in my opinion mm -hmm. so it's like every negotiation has two winners that's the best type of negotiation there is yeah and that's whenever you're negotiating with whenever you're speaking with your community whenever you're speaking with your other stakeholders within the game it's in a way a, a bit of a negotiation you're dealing with their expectations and their feelings and you're attempting to do right by them yeah if, if i may I would also say, like that—that's a truth bomb right there. Everyone who's listening, um, I, <laughs> I, listen, I listen when uh, when Dylan opens his mouth. Yeah. But that in particular, I think that um, knowing how your how the other person is feeling and what they really really want, and being able to meet that want, that is also your best defense against something like a co contract violation. Because if somebody is happy with their relationship with you and you are giving them what they want, why would they screw it up? Why would right. they screw with you? Exactly. From my perspective, um, it, what we're talking about here in crisis negotiation, we talk about it as need. Uh, in every crisis, recognize a need in another human being. That's all it is. And if you are, if you open yourself up to recognize that other people have needs as opposed to your own need, I need you to, you know, shut up and sit down or leave the plane right now. If we're talking about United. <laughs> <laughs> um, what what did that person actually need? And did you fulfill their need? And if you actually fulfilled their need, you might actually have got them to do what you wanted without having to risk a multi-million dollar lawsuit and class action suit from every passenger that's ever flown your shitty airline, right? So um, if we're looking at conflict resolution, we can look at it that way. If we're looking at it from a development of a relationship standpoint, it's it's everybody can win. This is not a zero-sum game. We all just need to become united with one another. Yeah, yeah. People just <laughs> think of contract negotiation as a zero-sum game. And I believe, and I know Dylan, Dylan and I talk about this a lot, we, we both believe that this is kind of the wrong way to go about it. Because if you play to win, then somebody has to lose. And if you look at it that way, then... <laughs> Then you're going to get in this air, this con this adversarial relationship straight from the get-go, and that sets the tone for the rest of your relationship. Where it's like, yeah, I don't care about this product anymore because you stiffed me on a percent. Yeah, and I'm not going to develop for you anymore, or whatever. And that is that really what you want? That reminds me, like I the other day, I don't know why, but I was like binging some Shark Tank, and. Uh, you know, there's all there's all these all these negotiations that are going on, and then the person who's pitching the project will be like, uh, "Well, you know, you want twenty percent. Would you take nineteen percent?" And they're like, "Look, like, no, deals off. Like, if you're gonna if you're gonna get me for one percent at this junction of our relationship, like, no, of course not. not a good starting point. <laughs> it's not a good place to begin this 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 relationship. And I think that that's kind of what you're saying is it's mm -hmm. like. I was thinking about I was thinking about this the uh, the other day while you know putting numbers in the document and I'm like, am I really going to like you know go you know to the mat for this percentage point, or am I going to say you know what like I'll make it up in having a happy designer that I get to work with for years to come like it, it's just it's so strange to me, right. but it, but you're right it's because people feel like they have to win the negotiation they have to feel like they they come out ahead and gamers are going to game 
And so they have to have like, you know, a higher score at the end of the day. It's like if you put in your dating profile and you will be buying me dinner on our first date. It's like, well, I wouldn't have minded doing that, but this is a, I don't know that I want to to begin a relationship <laughs> on these grounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, there's a there's a lot of it to that. I mean, we 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 use psychology when we when we negotiate a lot, and you know, it's not gaming the system, but the long tail of it is this: if I take a cut at the beginning to get a bigger cut at the end, aren't we all winning? Right? Yeah. Aren't we all winning? And it's 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 kind of funny. There's some publishers who don't like that very much. They, well, I think I know partially it's just they want easy account. But, you know, if I said, hey, I'm willing to take 6% at, you know, for the first thousand units, 7% for anything past that, or whatever it is, and they were already offering me, you know, um, you know, six and a half or something, right? I said, I'm willing to take a cut off the first one so you guys can put some more money into marketing this thing. And then when we all get over the 1,000-unit mark or 2,000-unit mark, whatever it is, we're all winning, aren't we? Yeah, I think that's a really smart way to start. We did that with Steampunk Rally as well, and I want to do that with with all the games because it makes sense from both perspectives. Then suddenly you're working for this common goal of like, can how many thousands of units of this thing can we sell? It's increasing the designer's stake. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it is. It's my buy-in is higher at the end than it is at the beginning. And that's when you want it is kind of almost when you need that extra push after the first thousand units have sold or 2000 or 5,000, whatever it is nowadays, as your, 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 your print run is sold, you want that designer back on the horse to ride that and, and champion that thing, that game through to the next print run, right? Or design some new thing because they're still interested in sales. Uh, also, it gives, it, it, you know, we've had some problems at times with, you know, oh, we don't give advances. That's only for like, you know, Reiner Nitzia. It's like, well, okay. Uh, a, what has he done lately? Uh, B, uh, I'm kind of serious. Whoa. I'm kind of right serious. Fire. But I mean, what what is what is he doing that you know I'm not doing? I'm on social media every day pushing product. He's right. not. You know I've sold more units of my own thing than he's probably ever sold of his own thing. And you know not saying that I can sell as much as Reiner Nitzia or that I even can design a game as well as Reiner. But my point is this: in in the value, the commodity that somebody's willing to give you, if somebody's willing to give you five hours of their time on social media, making videos and talking about their game and doing all these things, value that somewhat, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And all I'm asking from you as a publisher is to put some skin in the game so that I know that you're not gonna just sit this game on a shelf and let it rot. Because if you're gonna do that, I don't wanna sign with you. And right. it's not because I, yeah. I don't need any of your money. I don't need any of your money at all, you know? It's it's not money is not the thing for me that gets me in this game. This the game design thing is, and it's not even about having my game out there. It's about good games in general. Um, and so I don't need your money, but I want you to do something with the game that I'm giving to you, that I'm entrusting you with. It's about I'm, respect, right? You want to yeah. feel like you're being respected for your contributions. Yeah, partially. I wouldn't necessarily even say respect is what I need. I, it, it's commitment. If that's respect, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Maybe the same thing. But it's a commitment to me that you are going to take care of the baby that I'm passing over to you. Because I, I'll admit, these games are my babies. 
I spend more than nine months raising this thing right? inside inside my inside my inside my uh, ut- my brain uterus. Do I have, can I have you define your stake in the game, and you expect that if you're going to give the publisher increase their stake, you want them to increase yours in return. Yeah, or vice versa, right? That I think their stake in the game needs to be something in order to prove to me that they're going to do it. And most publishers are, yeah, that that makes sense. And honestly, like you know, it could be fifty bucks, it could be a hundred bucks. I don't ask for it a lot. I just want something that shows me a token. It's a token. And so they'd say, well, why do I even have to do that? Well, cause that's what it's going to take to get this game. If you want to make, if you want to make 93 or 95 or whatever percent of the profits off of this product, what's it is, is $150 really a big deal. I don't know. And if it is, then maybe I shouldn't be publishing with you because you have cash flow issues, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> right. So anyway, what are your so, thoughts to finish this off, Dale? Well, normally at the end of the of the show, it's the typical question that we ask the question for, you know, what what would you tell a newbie designer? But let's let's say how would you talk to someone? Well, maybe we'll we'll start with with Chris and we'll kind of work our way alphabetically. <laughs> uh, so Chris, what would you tell to someone who's just about to launch their Kickstarter and who is going to be part of a team in charge of staying in contact with their community, their designer, their, you know, their art crew, how, what would you tell them uh, to, to do in order to maintain cohesion within the group and keep everyone, keep everyone's expectations fulfilled? Well, I think that, uh, you know, it, it depends on the, the, the size of the team, obviously. Uh, but one of the things that I'm sort of really passionate about when I'm doing community management for, uh, for Card Kingdom and Mox Boarding House is really letting people um, vent, letting people, you know, uh, ask whatever questions they, they might have or, be, you know, any comments that they might have. But, but after that, responding in, to all of it. I, I'm a big proponent of getting in there, being transparent and letting people know the process. And if you are a Kickstarter creator, I think one of the benefits that Kickstarter uh, that tends to get lost in the shuffle nowadays with these like mega campaigns coming out. But at the end of the day, every time someone makes uh, a purchase, they want to be purchasing from another human being. And so I think that that community management is a way for every company, regardless of the size, to inject some, you know, humanity into the process. And so that's kind of how the way I, I look at it is, you know, when I was running our Kickstarter for Last Garden, I was trying to, uh, you know, I was responding to everyone uh, as as openly as possible. Um, and, I, and I just kept that, that communication going. Now, you know, we had I think a little over between 700 and 800 backers for Last Garden. So like we weren't inundated with the amount of comments that we might get if we were kickstarting, you know, Rising Sun or something like that. Uh, but I think that the key to community management is is recognizing that people want to deal with humans and, and treating people with respect uh, because, you know, even before I knew that we were going to call them stakeholders, you know, you still know that the people that are backing your campaign are integral to, to the process. And so they need to be treated as such. So, that's what I would say. Be transparent and be human. Excellent. Oren. Yeah. Uh, 
So, so what is the question? How do I? Sorry, restate it again. I was think, I was just lost in thought. What would, would it be your advice to someone who's just about to start their first Kickstarter and they're going to have to try to maintain their communication links with all the stakeholders? Okay. Well, I guess so. There's so many people trying to start Kickstarters now. It's it's the gold rush. So I know this isn't really part of your question, but I would say the first the first step to to maintaining good communication with your with your player base is to do a really good job of playtesting your game before you put it on Kickstarter. Uh, I think um, if you if you have this product that you've um, you know brought to all kinds of different people, you know, in your target market and all that, and you have uh, lots and lots of good feedback on it, you're starting from a really really good. Uh, bedrock. I think that's a way smarter place to be than to just say I have this cool idea and I'm going to get some art and throw it up on on Kickstarter. Um, so I think immediately that's going to put you off uh, on the right foot. Um, onwards from that, I think like transparency is really really useful. There's a lot of things that can go wrong with a Kickstarter. You know, I I think anybody who starts out have to recognize you probably don't know 60% of the things that are going to go wrong. You haven't even thought of those things, you know, all kinds of shipping stuff and, and, and delays and extra costs and, uh, you know, just unforeseen weird crap. Um, but I think people are a lot more understanding of that stuff when you're really open about it. I, I backed up a project um, about, about a year ago, uh, the, the Lazy Gamer, it's like this big rotating table, uh, and that was supposed to come out quite a while ago. Um, so I would be really frustrated if there was just like silence, radio silence. Um, but the guy's been really, really open, maybe maybe oversharing a little bit. He's gotten a little bit personal about some of the some of the stuff that's been going on with this. But, but I think everybody really, really appreciates that. Like there's a very nice uh, community feel in all the forums of people saying like, oh, yeah, you've undertaken this huge thing. You've kind of bitten off a little more than you could, and you've had some bad luck, and we're willing to, you know, stick it out and wait and, and you know, see. And maybe some people might meet him halfway and come and, and pick it up so he doesn't have to ship it and things like that. Um, I think that's – it's just so so important to put a human face on things. And I think Paul does a really great job with that with, with Roxley. Like, we try to treat our customers and, and talk to them as human beings, and it, it can make all the difference. It, it's almost, I think it's a lot more important than the actual circumstances and, and hitting every single thing and doing everything correctly. A hundred percent. So a phrase we use in teaching is that people will not remember what you taught them, but they will 100% remember how you treated them, right? So Paul, what's your answer? You're the final say, buddy. What do you got to say? Uh, absolutely. And, and once again, I'm following people that I really like their answers. Um, <laughs> In an unrelated conversation, somebody recently told me that one of the deepest human needs is the need to hear people and to be heard by people. 100%, yep. And my experience with Roxley's Kickstarters is very much, uh, very much matches that. Um, when we get positive feedback, it's because people are glad that we're talking to them and they're glad that we're listening to them. And we made changes to Santorini based on what the, the community asked for. And, you know, we've updated them uh, to a ridiculous amount. Uh, and that's, um, as, as Chris said, you want to try to answer every message. Uh, even if you can't help someone, even if you don't have an answer for them for whatever question they want, even if you think they're being a jerk, to, you know, try and find some way to answer them uh, to just acknowledge, hey, I've heard you, I'm listening to you, I care about what you have to say, you know? 
And uh, if you don't have enough manpower to do that, like when you get big enough or if you are big enough, then you need to surround yourself with people who are going to do that for you. And hopefully they will have uh, the relevant, relevant information. You've got this person expert on that, this person expert on the other thing. And you've got a little FAQ for all of them. Uh, and that's, that's the role uh, Gavin has when he's in charge of our upcoming Kickstarter. Um, I, I may be a little biased, but I'm personally of the opinion he does an excellent job of it. So uh, if, if, I, I I don't think you could do wrong by watching our upcoming Kickstarter and watching how Gavin handles it. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not going to claim credit for it myself. I'm part of the team, but he, he Roxy gets a lot of uh, credit for our Kickstarters, and uh, we, we're absolutely welcome to feedback. If people point something out in, in it that you think we're doing wrong, message me, or mes- I will pass it on to Gavin. Yeah. Um, but um, I, I think we, we do get a lot of positive, and so uh, watch what we do and see whether you can do better. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, Roxley is definitely one of the gold standards for how to run a Kickstarter. Maybe Absolutely. not, maybe not volume and money. I mean, if you want to do that, look at Cool Mini. But if you're looking at how to build community through your Kickstarter campaign, how to respond in a way that is transparent yet forthright, how to be on time, how to be all those things, Gavin has laid out a template. The Roxley team follows it, and the proof of the eating, as they say, is in the pudding. Um, or the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Yeah, that's it. Yes. Um, and so definitely look at that. Um, one last thing to show you all before we go is this lovely picture of my good friend Dylan Kirk and his lovely children playing Carcassonne in Carcassonne. Yes. And there's no, there's no better way to end this than the inception moment of the bearded Viking himself playing a French farming game in a French farming city. We got to get Gord playing Santorini in Santorini. Why is this not oh, happening yet? Yeah, I mean, well, when, when he does that, Jay and I will also go over there and we will play Akrotiri in Santorini, which is also Akrotiri. <laughs> nice. I played yeah. Akrotiri at Olympus, but uh, that's as far as that's... All I, that's the only place I went to in Greece. So. Oh, well, that's, that's close enough, man. <laughs> I played Steampunk Rally with a top hat on. Does that count? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, sorry, it does not. <laughs> I'm, I'm counting it. You get a half point. <laughs> oh, a half point. And Dylan, I'm sure you've played Genji in Japan at some time, so that probably counts. Indeed. Indeed. All right. Well, thanks so much for a great show. Uh, we went really long, which is perfectly fine because Dylan and I weren't going to do an after show anyway. Um, but I'm super happy that everybody is on. Chris, thank you so much for coming in from Mox Boarding House in Seattle, Washington. Great store. If you ever get a chance to go to Seattle, Washington, it is a little bit of a mecca of game design, gaming, and some wonderful, wonderful people. Some of my favorite people in the industry come from that, Chris being one of them. Mox Boarding House, great store. Go there. Um, Century Box in Calgary. If you're out there, look for these two fools. That, that I'm right there. And that one right there. Uh, what days are you guys usually there to play test? Monday night, every, almost Monday every Monday. So almost every Monday night, they'll be there at Century Box, where you can also get awesome games. But you can hopefully even meet up with uh, the Roxy crew to play test. If you have something that you'd like them to see, maybe go there. Uh, I'm at the Cardboard Cafe in London, Ontario, Canada, every Thursday night. Uh, so come find me, play games. You can test my stuff. I'll test your stuff. I like doing that. It's great. And Dylan's unfortunately in France, so I don't know what to say about unfortunately. that. Unfortunately, find me in France. Well, maybe somewhere. that. Okay. Great. In Carcassonne. Um, in Carcassonne. In Carcassonne. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, thanks so much for coming on the show, everybody. Thanks for uh, staying with us. We had a great audience today. And we'll be back next week. Daryl should be back from the Gathering of Friends. And we'll hopefully hear about what he did there, how many of the umpteen games that he makes a day uh, got signed. And probably even more importantly to the rest of us is what did he play that was really cool? <laughs> so we'll see you guys later. Thanks very much. Thanks and there's no extra because I suck. All right, bye. Thanks so much. Cheers. Bye. Cheers. Bye.